الحمد لله رب العالمين له الحمد الحسن والثناء الجميل وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له يقول الحق وهو يهدي السبيل وأشهد أن سيدنا ونبينا محمد صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه والتابعين لهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين أما بعد إن شاء الله تعالى Today we're going to be starting a two-day dawrah a two-day dawrah, two-day intensive course on the book Umdatul Ahkam and we're not going to be doing the entire book but we're going to be studying a chapter from the book the chapter of fasting and the hadiths that we're going to be taking are 32 hadiths inshallah ta'ala today we're going to take 16 الكريم, and tomorrow we're going to take another 16 inshallah ta'ala if we don't take 16 today we will finish the rest tomorrow inshallah ta'ala but before we go into the book i want to mention that a bit about the book what is this book and the second thing that i want to do inshallah ta'ala is i want to speak about uh, the author of the book okay before the salah inshallah ta'ala this book is authored by an imam whose name is whose name is Abdul Ghani Ibn Abdul Wahid Ibn Abdul Wahid Abdul Ghani Ibn Abdul Wahid Ibn Ali Ibn Surur Ibn Rafi' Ibn Hussein Ibn Ja'far Ibn Al-Jama'ili Al-Maqdisi Thumma Al-Dimashqi Al-Salihi Al-Hanbali Al-Athari So his name is Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid Al-Maqdisi That's what he's known as Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid Al-Maqdisi and his kunya is Abu Muhammad his kunya is Abu Muhammad the Sheikh was born in Jamma'il Jamma'il that's where the Sheikh was born Min Ardi Filastin Min Ardi Filastin which is part of Filastin and he was born Rahimahullah Ta'ala Sanata Ihda Wa Arba'ina Wa Khamsmi'a he was born 541 Hijriya. There are many views, but this one seems the most apparent. Okay, that, this is what seems most apparent. That he was born 541 Hijriya. The scholars, they attribute him to Bayt al-Maqdis by calling him al-Maqdisi because Jama'il is close to Maqdis. Very close to Bayt al-Maqdis. It's in Palestine and it's close to Bayt al-Maqdis. So he was named after it. So he's called Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisiyu. Maqdisi here means Bayt al-Maqdis. His father, Abdul Wahid, the author, his father, Abdul Wahid, Abdul Ghani's father, Abdul Wahid, was from the first pat, I mean the first group of people from his family to flee uh, Baytul Maqdis. 
there was a, a tyrannical leader who were killing and massacring. It was a non-Muslim, by the way, who was killing the Muslims. So Abdul Ghani's family, they fled Baytul Maqdis. They hid. And when they hid, they traveled to a place called Dimashqa, Damascus today. They went to Damascus. And this was the year Sanata Ihda wa Khamsina wa Khamsimi'a, 551 Hijriya. So he was only 10 years old. Based on the birth, he's only 10 years of age. Abdul Ghani's family is a family, ilmiyatun saliha, a righteous, noble family. They used to be called Ussalatu Salihiyyad, the righteous family. That's what they were known as. Their worship, their ibadah. And they were also known as a family of knowledge. He came out from a house of knowledge. Rahimahullah. His family were rooted in knowledge. Generations, generations. They were rooted in knowledge and ilm. And they weren't just rooted in knowledge, but they were rooted also in piety and nobility. So from a very early age, he embarked on the path. He embarked on the path of seeking knowledge and gaining knowledge. And he started to seek knowledge in Dimashq. Where did he start to seek knowledge in? Dimashq. And he took knowledge from the leader of the family. The man who used to run the family. And his name was Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Qudamat al-Maqdisi. Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Qudamah al-Maqdisi. Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Qudamah al-Maqdisi is the father of Muwaffaquddin ibn Qudamah al-Maqdisi, the author of Kitab al-Mughni, the author of the book, Hanbali book, al-Mughni, which is the Sharah of Muhtasar al-Khiraqi. His father, Muwaffaquddin, his name is called Abdullah ibn Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Qudamah al-Maqdisi. So the father of Muwaffaquddin, was the man who ran the family. And so, Abdul Ghani sought knowledge from him. And Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Qudam al-Maqdisi is the uncle of Abdul Ghani. Okay, he's an uncle to him. He's a uncle to him. But their, their relationship is from his mother's side, not from the father's side. Abdul Ghani and Muwafaquddin. We'll speak about, speak, speak about that soon. So anyways, he took knowledge from Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Qudama. He taught him knowledge and he studied with him a good amount. But as you all know, scholars don't stay in one place when they want to seek knowledge. They travel. Traveling was the way forward. They would go and they would travel to seek knowledge. They would go to places where knowledge was mentioned. They would go to the ulama around the world to meet them, to take knowledge from them. That's what they would do. And Khatib al-Baghdadi, Imam al-Mashriq, he wrote a book called Ar-Rihlatu fi Talab al-Ilm. Like traveling to seek knowledge. He has a book on that. And he mentions in there stories of great scholars who traveled to seek knowledge. So Abdul Ghani is from those scholars who went to seek knowledge, to gain knowledge from scholars. He took knowledge from, rahimahullah, other than his uh, uncle, he took it from Abi al-Makarim, Abdul Wahid ibn Muhammad ibn Hilal, who died in the year 565. And he also took from Abi Ma'ali, Abdullah ibn Sabirin, who died in the year 570, 
576. Salman ibn Ali al-Rahbi, who died in the year 569. When he was 20 years old, he traveled to Baghdad. When he went to Baghdad, and the year was taqriban, sanata ihda wa sitina wa khamsumia. It was 561. So he's 20 years old. 561. And he went with his cousin. Who was his cousin I just mentioned right now? Muwafaquddin ibn Qudama, the author of the Kitab al-Mughni. The Mughni is a big book. It's the sharh of the Kitab al-Mukhtasar al-Khiraqi. He went with him. Both of them went together. And this shows us that when you want to seek knowledge, it's also good to take someone with you. Because you can encourage one another. Anyways, they both traveled to Baghdad. And when they went to Baghdad, Ibn Qudama al-Maqdisi, Abdullah ibn Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Qudama al-Maqdisi, he was more inclined to fiqh. Ibn Qudama loved fiqh more. Amyalu ila al-fiqh. He leaned towards fiqh. Whereas Abdul Ghani, Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi, was more inclined to hadith and the knowledge of the narrators and the senate and etc. That's what they both were like. When they went to Baghdad, the first person they met was Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. Abdul Qadir al-Jailani is from the A'imma to Minahl al-Sunnah. He's a great Imam. Hanbali al-Madhab. Great scholar. But some people came and they were extreme on him. But Abdul Ghani has nothing to do with that. What's been attributed to him has nothing to do with him. When they went to Abdul Ghani, Abdul Wahid, so when they went to Abdul, Abdul Qadir al-Jailani, they took from him and they learned from him hadith and fiqh. And Abdul Ghani died in the year 561. They took from him. Also, they took from the other scholars that were there and they read things on them like Abil Fath Nasr ibn Fatiyan. Um, also, uh, Abil Fath Muhammad ibn Abdul Baqi ibn Batti, Ahmad ibn al Muqarrab al Karhi, Abi Bakr ibn Naqur, Hibatullah ibn al Hassan ibn Hilal al Dakaq, Abi Zur'at al Tahir ibn Muhammad al Shaybani al Maqdisi. They took from those scholars and they stayed in there um, four years. They stayed in Baghdad for four years. And then they came back to Dimashq, where they were uh, originally at. After four years of being in Baghdad, they came to Dimashq. And then he traveled to Egypt, Abdul Ghani. And then he traveled to Iskandaria. And that time he met the scholars of that time. From them is Abu Tahir al-Silafi, because seen. Abu Tahir al-Silafi, Silafi, who died in the year 576. He met him and he took from him. He also took from Abu Muhammad Abdullah ibn Barri al-Nahwiyu. He was a grammarian of his time. He took knowledge from him as well. And he went back and forth to many different countries. They said that the scholars that he took from were more than a hundred teachers. More than a hundred teachers. Abdul Ghani, Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi. And each person he took from, he took them from, from them a great portion of knowledge. This shows us the dedication and the hard work of these great scholars. We might have a lesson in our local masjid and may not travel to it. But these a'imma, they traveled from one side of the world to the other side. And the scholars, they mention, Knowledge doesn't come to you, but you have to go to knowledge. You have to travel for knowledge if you want to attain it. Abdul Ghani, Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi, what was his characteristics like? What type of person was he? 
The scholars, they said, he had noble characteristics. Had a great noble characteristics, rahimahullah. His akhlaq was very good, very high. They attributed to him bilhifdi wa tasnif. His memorization was precise. And he was a person who authored, rahimahullah. He wrote, he wrote many books. They said that he was a person who used to call to the good and prohibit the evil. If he saw someone do something wrong and he went against Allah's religion in the most gentle manner, he will go and approach that person and he will inform them of it. He was strong in that regard, calling to the good and prohibiting the evil. Rahimahullah ta'ala. And he never cared the blame of the one who blames him. He never cared. If this is what was pleasing to Allah Azza wa Jalla, and this is what Allah wanted, he would say it. But he would watch the way he said it. And he would say it in a gentle, respectful manner. But he didn't care after that what anyone would say. Rahimahullahu ta'ala. His personality was very strong. He was courageous. Rahimahullahu ta'ala. He was also mutawadi, very humble. Very humble individual. They described him to be a very generous person, very generous, bilkaram. That they said, rahimahullah, he never used to store anything in his house. And he would never keep anything and store it and keep it to himself. He used to give, rahimahullah. That it was said about him that he was so generous that if he wanted someone to get something, he wouldn't trust it with anybody else. He would go and try to take that thing to, him, to the person himself. He used to take the charity and the zakat to the people himself. Rahimahullahu ta'ala. He was also mentioned to be a person that when he saw that his student was very good and he was very dedicated and he wouldn't see it uh, problematic and he wouldn't object to it that his student will go and travel and take knowledge from someone else. Because these are bad characteristics with some people. They see a student who's good, who's dedicated, who's got good knowledge and that he can even pass the teacher. And then they feel that they want to hold the student down. Always keep the student under their wing. Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid al Maqdisi, if he saw that the student was very good and the student was dedicated and ambitious, and he saw that the student was coming with a lot of hard work, he would say to them, Go and travel. Go and travel. Go and take knowledge from other great scholars. And he would, that would please him a lot. One of the characteristics that was mentioned about him was he had three sons. Muhammad and Abdullahi and Abdurrahman. And it was said that he's from the rare scholars who made sure that his, his, his children were his students. And they took knowledge from him and that they benefited from him. Because a lot of the scholars and a lot of the people who seek knowledge and who go to this path of seeking knowledge, a lot of them what happens to them is they forsake their children. And they forget about their children. And you rarely come across a scholar whose son became a scholar as well. There are, but they're very little. And if somebody was to take time out and to author a book in this regard, it would be very good. To compile all of the scholars who are children, whose children became scholars after them. Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid al Maqdisi, as I mentioned, his teachers were more than a hundred. And I mentioned some of them. And some of his teachers were female teachers. They were female teachers that he took knowledge from. Ilmul Hadith, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And some of his female teachers are mentioned in the book, At-Targhibu Fi Du'a'i Wal-Hathi Alayha. 
Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid Al Maqdisi, Rahimahullah, as I said before, he was inclined more to hadith and the science of hadith. That's what his field of expertise was, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And that was the field that people would come to him to take knowledge from him. And from his students in hadith was his own cousin. His own cousin. Um, Abdullahi uh, ibn Ahmed uh, ibn Muhammad ibn Qudama al-Maqdisi Mufakuddin, the author of al-Mughni took knowledge from Abdul Ghani when it came to hadith he took knowledge from him and he benefited uh, from him his children also took knowledge from him and he gave them all ijazat in hadith from his students is al-Hafid Abdul Azim al-Mundiri the author of the kitab al-Targhib wa Tarheeb that's a famous book Therefore, he's from the student of Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid Al Maqdisi, Rahimahullah. Brothers, Abdul Ghani, as any other scholar of his time, he went through trials and tribulations. Scholars were always tested, and people of knowledge were tested. And it comes with the territory, it comes with this path of seeking knowledge that you'll be tested. I'm going to mention three times, I'm at three situations of his life, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. The first of the tests that he went through is he entered into Asbahan. Ama Asfahan. Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid al Maqdisi, he entered into Asfahan. He came to Asfahan. When he came into Al Asfahan, Abdul Ghani ibn Abdul Wahid al Maqdisi, he came across a book called Ma'arifatul Sahaba. Like knowing the companions. And this kitab is written by Abu Nu'aym al-Asfahani. Ama Abu Nu'aym al-Asfahani. This is it's written by him. Abdul Ghani ibn Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi, he read the book. He read the kitab, Ma'arifatu, Ma'arifatu sahaba And when he read the book, he saw in the book 200 mawdi'an, 290 places where the author did mistakes. He came and he stood over 290 places where the author, Abu Nu'aym al-Asbahani, did mistakes in the book. So he pointed, he pointed that out. And so when he pointed that out, he was highly criticized. Because he's in the land of what? The land of Abu Nu'aym al-Asbahani. Abu Nu'aym was from this land. And he's in Asbahan. And so he was criticized greatly. And the people who fought him highly was Usra, a family known as Bayt Khujandi, Bayt Al-Khudanjiyu, which were an Ash'ari group. And Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi was anti-Ash'ara. He was against the Ash'ara creed. And he fought against it. And so they used this opportunity to cause him great harm. And because of that, he ran away. فَخَرَجَ Abdul Ghani مِنْ أَصْبَحَانْ مُتَخَفِّيًا he ran away from Asbahan hiding. In the middle of the night he left. The second time was, he covered and he taught the kitab Al-Du'afa by Al-Uqayli. He taught the book Al-Du'afa by who? Al-Uqayli, rahimahullah. And in that book, Al-Uqayli, one of the people, because the kitab is called Al-Du'afa, those who are weak. Those who are, those who are weak. And in there, Al-Uqayli, you mentioned one of the people who were weak in hadith is who? Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah. He mentions that in a book. And so, Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi, when reading the book, he came across this part and he explained it. 
And so he was caused great harm in the land that he was at at that time, which was Mosul. Mosul is the second land. They were Hanafis in fiqh. And so they became very hurt by that. And they gave him a lot of harm. They even intended to kill him. And Al-Burhan ibn al-Barni, Al-Burhan ibn al-Barni, who was a wa'id, a reminder, who had an influence on the community, who was a reminder, used to heart soften the people. He felt that he had to help the sheikh. So he helped him get away from the place. The third time he was tested was when he came to Dimashq. Abdul Ghani Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi. He came to Dimashq and the people accepted him. When they saw his knowledge, when they saw his piety, and when they saw his understanding of the religion. So a group of people, they became jealous and envious of him. They were jealous. Hasad entered their hearts towards Abdul Ghani. And so what they did was, they tested him in his aqidah. They said, what do you believe? And so he mentioned what he believed. And he mentioned his aqidah. And so they said to him, you're not allowed to teach. No, you can't teach. And if you do, we're going to cause you harm. And so they forced him to leave Dimashq. Say, leave Dimashq. You're not going to be here anymore. Fadaqa dhar'a. The land became very tight on Abdul Ghani, Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi. So he went to Ba'labak. He went to Ba'labak. When he went there, he left there as well, and he went to Misr, Egypt. When he came to Egypt, he sat down to teach in Egypt hadiths of the Prophet wasallam, and the people benefited from him. The fuqaha of Egypt, because he was going against their fiqh, he was going against their fiqh and their verdicts of fiqh, um, they told the leader, Al-Wazir Al-Adil Al-Safiyu of Egypt, they said, this man, get rid of him. He's a problem. And get rid of him. And that they said, This man corrupted the people's aqidah. He's corrupting the people's aqidah. So the leader said, okay. He wrote a letter. I mean, he commanded his scriber to write a letter. He said, write. Take a pen and paper. And he said, write the following. And so when he wanted to dictate, the scriber said, I don't think it's necessary for you to write anything now. Because Abdul Ghani ibn Abdul Wahid al-Maqdisi has left you guys. Meaning he died. There's no need for you guys to want to get rid of him. He has, got, he has left you guys. And he died, rahimahullah, in Egypt. Rahmatan wasi'ah. The scholars of his time, they praised him, praised him, praised him greatly. He was praised highly. And Imam al-Dhahabi said about him, Huwa al-Imam al-Alim, al-Hafid al-Kabir, al-Sadiq, al-Qudwa, al-Abid, al-Athari, al-Muttaba'a. Alim al He said he is an Imam, an Imam, a person who is followed in good, a Sadiq, truthful man. Al Qudwa, he was a role model. He was a Abid, a worshipper. Al Athari, a person who followed the Kitab and the Sunnah, salih, and that which the pious predecessors were upon. Ibn Kathir, Ibn Kathir said about him, Kana nadinan fi zamani. He was rare in his time. No one like him. In the narrators and the names of the narrators. He was unique in the way he memorized and he was precise in the narrations and the hadith. He knew the different wordings. He knew the what? Different wordings of hadith. Who narrated this wording and who narrated that wording? He was precise in it. He was solid and he was strong in the narrators. Rahimahullah ta'ala. 
rahmatan wasi'a. One of the best people to talk about him is his own cousin, Ibn Qudama rahimahullah, the author of the Kitab al-Mughni, Mufaquddin Ibn Qudama. He said about him, he said about him, um, he combined between knowledge and implementation of knowledge. Like he implemented what he knew. Rahimahullah. And he was my friend when we were young. We sought knowledge together. When we were seeking knowledge. We never competed in good. He would always beat me in it. Except something small here and there. And Allah completed on him what Fadilatu Allah's virtue. He completed on him. He did it. And that was through the people of innovation of his time. They caused him a great harm. And they had hate in their heart towards him. And they stood against him. Knowledge was given to him. Rahimahullah ta'ala. It was also said about him, لو أقام الحافظ بأصبحان If he was to stay in Asbahan, and he was to remain there, and he was to be patient, رحمه تعالى, مدة, a period of time, وأراد أن يملكها, and he wanted to take over Asbahan, لملكها, he would have been able to take over Asbahan. Meaning the people loved him. They really, really loved him. رحمه الله تعالى. They loved him. التاج الكندي رحمه الله said لم يكن بعد الدارقطني after دارقطني there was no one like عبد الغني ابن عبد الواحد المقدسي after دارقطني and who is دارقطني دارقطني is the one who authored the twenty volume book العلل الواردة from memory it's a twenty volume book he he dictated it from memory دارقطني رحمه الله تعالى no one came after him like عبد الغني ابن عبد الواحد المقدسي Abdul Ghani ibn Abdul Wahid al Maghdisi has many books. Some of the scholars they mention his books reach 70. But the most, the most famous ones I'm going to mention, inshallah ta'ala. The most famous one is the Kitab al Kamal fi Asma'i al Rijal. Al Kamal fi Asma'i al Rijal. The Kitab al Kamal was written by him and it's the narrators of the six books of hadith, the Imams of the six books of hadith. Who are the Imams of the six books of hadith? Al Bukhari, Al Muslim. Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, Al-Nasai, Ibn Majah, Tirmidhi, Abu Dawood, Al-Nasai, and Ibn Majah. Those four books and the two Sahihain, Bukhari and Muslim. Those six. What he did was, he wrote all of those Imams, their narrators. Their narrators. He wrote a book in it. So if you want to find those six Imams, their narrators, you find it in that book. Their biography, who they are, where they were born, who they took from. He authored a book in it. And that's the book that scholars came after that and they summarized it. Abu Hajjaj al Mizzi came, he summarized it into a kitab called Tahdeeb al Kamal, Rijal. And then after him came Dhahabi, and then Mughlatai, and then uh, what do you call it? Ibn al Hajar came until Ibn Hajar uh, came. And Ibn Hajar summarized it into his At Taqrib. This is book is one of his books. Umdatul Hakam is one of his books. But what many people don't know. There's two Umdatul Ahkams. And many people don't know that. There's two Umdatul Ahkam. And they're both published. And they're both present. The difference is that the first Umdatul Ahkam is Qubra. It's big. It's got 900 and I think 40 hadiths in there. 940 hadiths in there. It's big. It's what? 
It's very big. This kitab, this one right now, is less than it. It's what? It's less than that. It's 40, 400 and something hadith in there, right? 400 something hadith. It's called Umdatul Sughra. It's the little one. The first one is Kubra, the big one, and this one is called the Sughra. The overwhelming majority of the scholars, they explain the Sughra, the small one. They don't explain the big one. They don't explain the big one, generally speaking. The author, Rahimahullah, he died an illness, Maradan Shadidan, Mana'ahul Kalam, Wal Qiyam. That stopped him from talking. The illness that he had, he was unable to talk and he was also unable to stand. And his illness became more and it carried on for 16 days. For 16 days he was very sick, Rahimahullah, and he died, Rabi'il Awwal, the year 600 Hijriya, Rahimahullah. He died in Egypt. And he died on a Monday, الثالث والعشرون, on the 23rd of Rabi'i al-Awwal, year 600. And he was old, his age was 59, صح? 59, yeah? That's very young, just under 60 years of age. That's a very young age. And he left this behind. The last thing that I want to talk about before I start is... What is this book about? Remember, it's a hadith book. This book is a hadith book. Okay? And the scholars, the way that they used to write hadith books are different. Some scholars would write hadith on 40 narrations of the most comprehensive speeches of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as Imam al-Nawi did. 40 hadiths. And these 40 hadiths are the comprehensive speeches of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Other scholars, they would write hadiths based on heart softening, virtuous actions like Riyadh al-Salihin. Riyadh al-Salihin is what? It's based on what? Fadailul a'mal, righteous actions. Hope, fear, heart softening. That's Riyadh al-Salihin. But it's hadith. This kitab is not for heart softening. Okay? And it's not virtuous actions necessarily. This book is written on Al-Ahkam, jurisprudent rulings. And these ahadiths are called Ahadithul Ahkam. They are what? Ahadithul Ahkam, jurisprudent rulings. Jurisprudent rulings. You're learning hukum shar'i. Is this permissible or is it not? Am I allowed to do this or not? Basically, it's hadiths where you take from it fiqh. You take from it fiqh. This book, Umdatul Ahkam, Scholars would memorize it. Scholars would what? They would memorize it. And they would take time out to memorize it. Many great scholars have memorized it. From them is Sakhawi rahimahullah memorized it. Iraqi memorized it. Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani memorized it. Shokani memorized it. Great scholars that you're looking at today, you're reading their works, they memorize Umdatul Ahkam. Because you need it in your day-to-day life. When somebody asks you, is this permissible? You, know, you need to know the hadith in your head. And as I always say, knowledge is that it's two things that come together. It's hifdun ma'afahmin. It's memorization with understanding. So these 32 hadiths, if you could take time out to memorize it from the chapter of fasting, after having understood it, it will help you a lot. It will help you a lot, inshallah ta'ala. The scholars, they took time out to explain this book of its importance and how good it is. 
And I'm going to mention some of the explanations that have been put on this book. And I'm going to mention the most important ones because there's so many that have been put on it. One of the most, and I personally believe it's the best explanation, one of the best explanations of Ibn al-Hakam is the explanation of Ibn al-Daqiq al-Eid. The, the explanation of Ibn al-Daqiq al-Eid. Ibn al-Daqiq al-Eid, he has a sharah called Al-Ihkam al-Ahkam. Fi sharh umdat al-Ahkam. Are we all together? The best publication that recently came out is the Darul Lubab from Sham, Dimashq, Darul Lubab. That's the best publication. And the beautiful thing about that one is, it is that it's got the Sharah of Ibn al-Daqiq al-Eid on there, which is Al-Ihkam al-Ahkam. And it also has, it also has the Udda of Amir Sanani on there, the footnotes of and the Hashi of Amir Sanani, published together. One of the scholars that explained this book in more than 20 volumes is Ibn Mulaqin, rahimahullah, the teacher of Ibn Hajar. He called it Al-I'lam bifawaidi umdati al-Ahkam. He called it Al-I'lam bifawaidi umdati al-Ahkam. Ibn Mulaqin, rahimahullah ta'ala, the teacher of Ibn Hajar. The third scholar that who explained it is um, Al-Fakihani, rahimahullah. He has a sharh called Riyadh al-Afham. Fi sharh umdati al-Ahkam. Which is very good. Also, the sharh of Safarini. He has a kitab called Kashfu al-Litham. Kashfu al-Litham. All of these books, we're going to be quoting them, inshallah ta'ala. Also, one of the explanations that have been put on it is the sharh of Sheikh Abdurrahman Nasir al-Sa'di. He explained it as well, rahimahullah ta'ala. Also, Al-Ilmam by Ismail Al-Ansari, rahimahullah. He explained it. Tanbihu Al-Afham fi shara umdati al-Ahkam by Sheikh Muhammad Al-Musal Al-Uthaymin. But the one that has come out by the Mu'assasat Al-Risal, Mu'assasat Al-Sheikh Al-Uthaymin, which is one thick volume, I think it stops at Kitab Al-Hajj. If I'm not wrong. I'm in the chapter of Hajj. Also, there's a sharah by Abdullahi Bassam. Abdullahi uh, Al-Bassab, his sharah is the most famous one that everybody knows of, which is called, which is called Taysir Al-Allam Fi Sharh Umdati Al-Ahkam. And there are many more. More than a hundred explanations have been put on it. Are we all together? One of the new explanations, one of the new explanations that really recently came out is the sharah of Abdullah ibn Salih Al-Fawzan. Abdullah ibn Salih Al-Fawzan's one came out recently. He called it Mawrid Al-Afham. And he is a unique author, Rahimahullah, a unique author in the way he wrote, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. His was very good and it's beneficial. He previously explained Bulugh al-Maram, he called it Minhatul Allam, Bulugh al-Maram, which the scholars loved. Ten volume, Darul Minhaj published it, everybody ran after that book and everybody loved it. Recently he brought out the explanation of Umdatul Hakam. Uh, he's still alive. He came out with this one recently. A couple of months, it just came out ago. Anyways, I'm going to be quoting for, from all of those books here and there. You hear those names and those authors sometime. But the way that I plan to go through this explanation is to make it easy. I don't want to go into too much details. I'm not going to mention too much difference of opinions. 
I'm only going to mention Al-Qawlul Rajih indeed, the strongest opinion to me. I'm going to tell you the strongest opinion that I believe to be strongest in that issue. If you want to then go research more, you're entitled to do so, and you might even differ with me. You might even differ with me. We're going to take, as I said, those first 16 hadiths today, inshallah ta'ala. And tomorrow we're going to take the second 16, inshallah ta'ala. The way that it will be studied is, Akhuna Abdul Samid is going to read the hadiths on me, and I'm going to explain the hadith. Each hadith, we're going to extract benefits from it. Bi-idhnillahi al-kareem. Now, inshallah ta'ala, you can go and do wudu' for Salat al-Maghrib. And then after Maghrib, we'll start the, uh, the chapter, inshallah ta'ala. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Lahu alhamdul hasan. Wa thana'u al-jameel. Wa ashadu an la ilaha illa Allah wahdahu la sharika lah. Yaqulu al-haqqa wa huwa yahdi sabil. Wa ashadu anna sayyidina wa nabiyyana Muhammad. صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه والتابعين لهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين أما بعد ولله الحمد والمنة We've spoken about the author of this book عمدة الأحكام The name of the author Who is he? A bit about his life In a very summarized manner, of course We also ولله الحمد والمنة ولله الحمد والمنة Praises to Allah عز وجل And glories to him we also spoke about a bit about the book, what this book deals with, how many ahadiths are in there, how important it is for one to memorize it. We've also spoken about um, the explanations that have been put on this book. Now, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to start the chapter of fasting, Kitab al-Siyam, the chapter of fasting. What does Asiyamu mean in the Arabic language? What does Asiyamu mean in the Arabic language? It means Al Imsak. Al Imsak is to withhold. The word, the Arabic word Asiyamu, Amasomu, it comes from the meaning of Al Imsak, to withhold, to refrain from something. Okay? And as Abu Ubaidah mentioned in his Majazul Quran, and also is mentioned in Ibn Faris mentions in Mu'jam Maqais al in the Arabic dictionary, that the word asiyamu fasting is to withhold from everything. Mutlaqul imsak. It means that you withhold from food. You also withhold from speech. All of that is fasting. All of that is, all of that is fasting. And that's why the mother of Isa ibn Maryam, she said, So what did she say? Sorry, فَقُولِي إِنِّي نَذَرْتُ لِلرَّحْمَانِ صَوْمًا I made a covenant and an oath with Allah. Inni sawman, a fasting. And then after that, what did she say? She said, I made a promise with Allah that I'm going to fast. And then what did she mention after that? Falan I'm not going to talk to anyone. So 
holding from speech is also fasting. She's using the, the Arabic usage, the linguistic, the lexical usage, where it means to restrain, I'm a refrain from something, whether it be speech, whether it be food, all of that is what? It is uh, the meaning of as-siyamu lughatan in the Arabic language. Shara'an in the Sharia, it means al-imsaku biniyati al-muftirat, al-muftirat. It is to withhold from the things that can break your fasting with an intention. Again, it is to withhold, it is to refrain from the things that can break your fast with an intention. So when you're withholding, you're doing it with an intention. And the things that break your fasting are what? At-ta'amu wa-sharabu wal-jima'ah. Drinking, eating, and in sexual intercourse. You can't do those three whilst you're fasting. So the person withholds from those with the intention. So you do it with an intention. It's not like you're, not do, you're doing it because you can't be bothered. Or I don't have food. No, you're doing it with an intention. Your intention is that you're doing to hold back from this. For the sake of Allah. Min shakhsin makhsusin. And it happens from a particular person. There's a particular person who does it. Not everybody does it. We'll see who are the people who can't do fasting. Also, fi waqtin makhsusin. It's done at an appointed time. There's a time which it starts and there's a time which it finishes. That's the definition of fasting in the Sharia. It is al-imsaku biniyati. It is to withhold, withhold, to refrain from, with an intention, anil mufattirati, the things that can break your fasting. Min shakhsin makhsus, from a particular person. Fi waqtin makhsus, at a particular time. If you want to study fasting, four things is what you need to know about fasting. If you want to learn the fiqh of fasting, if you want to have the understanding of fasting, there are four things that you need to know. The four things are as-sa'im, the one who's fasting, the rulings regarding the one who's fasting. As-sa'imu is the one who's fasting, the one who's doing the fasting. He has to have six conditions. The one who's fasting. If he wants to do fasting, six conditions need to be met. He has to be a Muslim. He has to be aqil, he has to be sane. A person who's insane doesn't fast. So he's a Muslim. Aqil. Baligh. Reach age of puberty. Another one for the women. Ghayru ha'idhin wala nufasa. She's not on her menstruation or she's not on her post-natal bleeding. Five, sahihun muqim. The person is, is a resident. So he's muqim, sorry, resident. And also, mustati' he has the ability to do it. Are we all together? 
Those six. Those six are for the person who's fasting. And then the second thing that you need to look at from the four things is what? As-sawm with the fasting. Which fasting are we talking about particularly? First of all, the fasting are how many types? The fasting are how many types? There are four types of fasting. There are four types. A fasting which is obligatory. A fasting which is obligatory. And the ones that are obligatory are three. There's only three fastings that are obligatory. Ramadan. You have to fast Ramadan, right? The second one is nether. You made a promise with Allah. You made a promise with Allah. It becomes obligatory on you. You say, oh Allah, I promise I'm going to fast for you. You make a covenant and an oath with Allah. And the third one is kafara, an expiation. You did a mistake in something. You did a, a wrong in somewhere. And you're, you're having to come with an expiation, a kafara you need to pay. And we're going to see one of the kafaras that you need to do. We're going to see them. The second type of fasting is that which is muharram. Haram, you can't do. And we're going to see it. The ones that are muharram. Which is fasting on Eidain. You can't fast on Eid al-Adha and Eid al-Fitri. It's muharram, it's haram. You can't. You're not allowed to. Sahih? The author is going to bring that. The third one is sunnah. It's recommended. And we're going to see that example, inshaAllah ta'ala, which is siyamu thalathati ayyami min kulli shahrin. Fasting three days of every month. Or, fast, or fasting Mondays and Thursdays. Sunnah. And also, makruh, disliked. It is what? It's disliked. Which we're going to see. Um, fasting, for example, on Saturday by itself, for example. Disputed whether it's haram or it's makruh. But fasting Saturday by itself, without no day before it or after it. Are we all together? That's the second pillar that you need to know when you're studying fiqh, fiqh of fasting. The first one was what? As-sa'imu, the one who's fasting, you learned the six, right? And the second one was what? The fasting, what type of fasting? Which one are we going to be talking about? The wajib, and the, which one in wajib? Ramadan. Ramadan. The third thing that you need to know is um, the things that corrupt your fasting. The mafasid. The mufsid. The things that can corrupt your that can corrupt your fasting. Some scholars they call it the mufatirat. The things that can corrupt your fasting. And they are what? There are three things that we're going to mention. Taking any substance through your mouth which reaches your stomach deliberately with your choice. You're deliberately doing it. That's number one. That's what it breaks your fast. If you take anything into your mouth and it goes to your stomach, what is it? 
And you do it deliberately. No one's forcing you. You're not under any duress. It breaks your fast. Number two is sexual intercourse. Jima'ah. Sexual intercourse. And we're going to talk about the three things that you need to do if you have sexual intercourse in the month of Ramadan deliberately. If you do it deliberately. Three things that you need to do in the order that you need to do it. The expiations, we're going to mention them inshallah ta'ala in the explanation here. The third thing that breaks your fast is amdan. If the person vomits deliberately. If he deliberately vomits. Those three are going to break your fast. As for hijama, the opinion that I am leaning towards is that it doesn't break your fasting. That the hijama doesn't break your fasting. And inshallah ta'ala, when the time comes, we're going to reconcile between the hadith of Shaddad ibn Ausin, which is in Sunani, Kutub Ahlul Sunan narrated it, where the messenger said, Aftar al-Hajim wal-Mahjum, the one who does hijama, and the one who does it for him, both of them, their fasting breaks. And the other hadith, hadith ibn Abbas fi Sahih Muslim, where it says, the messenger did hijama whilst he was fasting. How do we reconcile between that? We will come to it. But me, as I mentioned, those are the three that break your fasting. If you want to know, you should study that third part. part. So what was the first thing that I said that you need to know about fasting? The one who's fasting. What's the four things? I said four things you need to know about the fiqh of fasting. If you don't know these four, you're not going to learn fiqh of fasting. The first one is as-sa'imu, the one who's fasting, and the six conditions that I mentioned. The second one is the fasting itself and its types. Four types, we mentioned them. Wajib, Muharram, Masnoon, Amma Mandub, Amma Sunnah, and makru. We mentioned each one, right? And we spoke about the al-mufsid, al-mufattirat, the things that break your fasting. And we mentioned three, and one we said there's a difference of opinion regarding it, whether it breaks it. Are we all together? <clears throat> Remember the three that we spoke about are actions that you do that break your fasting. Are we all together? Are we all together, brothers? Three things I mentioned, there are actions that you do that will break your fasting. The first one is taking any substance into your mouth, okay, that reaches your stomach or break your fasting. Number two, what was it? Sexual intercourse. Fi nahari Ramadan. We're talking about while you're fasting. At nighttime, no. We're not talking about nighttime. We're talking about night, daytime. And three one is what? If you, don't, if you make yourself vomit, not if you, you feel sick and you vomit, that doesn't break your fasting. I said, amdan. The person puts his finger in his mouth and he brings it out deliberately. It'll break your fast. What also breaks your fast, that which isn't action, that breaks your fast is niyatul fitri. If the person intends in his head to break his fast, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't eat, it breaks his fasting. Because remember what we mentioned at the beginning. What was the definition that we gave for fasting? 
that the person comes with the intention to refrain from this. So if you get rid of that intention, it will break your fasting. Also, what breaks your fasting is if a person looks at a woman, a man looks at a woman too, so many times that it leads to ikhrajul mani, that the, something comes out from his genital private part, then this also breaks your fasting. Are we all together? That's deliberately looking at the opposite gender will break your fasting. Which then leads to, of course, it leads to the ikhrajul mani, that the many comes out. It breaks the fasting. Also, the last and the fourth thing that they were going to take here, inshallah ta'ala, in the book is al-maf'ulu um, fihi, the things that you do in fasting. The things that we should do inside fasting. And the author, rahimahullah, he mentions um, suhoor. Suhoor are things that you need to do in fasting. We're also going to take hastening the iftar which we're going to take. We're also going to take Al-I'tikaf. We're also going to take Qiyamul Layl and Taraweeh, Qiraatul Qur'ani, reciting Qur'an. All of those are things that you need to do within Ramadan. Does that make sense? Those are the four things that this whole two-day seminar is going to be about. That's a khulasa, a summary, right? Now we're going to start, inshallah, we're going to start the hadith, inshallah ta'ala. You all have an overview now? You have an idea? Naam. Before I start, fasting, when, what year was it made obligatory? Put your hand up if you know. So we can make the class interactive. Put your hand up if you know. Don't shout the answer out. Just put your finger up. If you know when fasting was made obligatory. It was made obligatory on the second year of the Islamic calendar after Hijrah to Rasulullah. When the Prophet migrated to Medina, two years later it was made obligatory. So it was a sanatistaniyati min al Hijrah. And this is bil ijma'. There's no difference of opinion. There's no difference of opinion. It's a consensus. And again, fasting was made obligatory, tadriji and gradual. It wasn't made obligatory all at once. It was made obligatory tajrijiyan. First of all, the person was given a choice. The person was given a choice. If he wanted to fast or if he wanted to eat. Allah said, فَمَنْ Whoever wants to do voluntary and he wants to come with tatawa' فَمَنْ خَيْرًا فَهُوَ خَيْرُ اللَّهِ Anyone wants to do voluntary, then that's good for him. And then what did the ayah say? For you to fast is good for you. It wasn't obligatory now. If you wanted to fast, you can fast if you want. You, there was a choice. But then that got abrogated um, from Ramadan. But it was voluntary for other fastings that we speak about, inshallah ta'ala. But Ramadan, it became فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمْ Anyone who saw the fasting of the entering of Ramadan, what, did she, what should he do? Falyasum fast. It became what? It became obligatory. You have to fast. There are benefits that are in fasting. I'm going to mention them, inshallah ta'ala. There are four benefits that I'm going to mention that are in fasting. Four benefits. The first benefit is fasting is one of the biggest. 
means to attain taqwa. Fasting is one of the biggest means, one of the greatest means to attain taqwa, piety of Allah Azza wa Jalla. Because what did the ayah say? The ayah of making fasting obligatory. What did Allah say? What did Allah say? Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu kutiba alaykum usiyamu kama kutiba alaylladhina min qablikum la'allakum tattaqoon tattaqoon Then to attain taqwa fasting was one of the means for it. Number two. Fasting allows you to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in abstaining and staying away from your desires. To stay away from what? From your desires. Everyone loves to follow their desires. Everyone wants to eat and enjoy himself and drink. But when you've shown that you're not going to eat and you're not going to drink and you're not going to have intimate relationship with your spouse, what came out of there? Sidqul mahabbati lillahi ta'ala. That you are truthful in your love to Allah Azza wa Jalla. Ha. You're a person who really loves Allah. Because what did you do? You pushed away your desires and what your nafs wants. And you gave precedence to Allah Azza wa Jalla and that which He commanded. Number three, fasting brings about self discipline. Self discipline. That's what fasting brings about. You are learning patience. You are learning forbearance. You don't need to go to a self-development course. Fasting gives you that, that self-discipline. That you are a person who has control over himself. That I tell myself when I'm going to eat. And I can tell myself when I don't want to eat. My body doesn't tell me when to eat and when not to eat and how to eat. Allah said about the non-Muslims, That the disbelievers, Allah said that they eat. Just eat, just eat. Because their, their desires has more control over than their what? Than them controlling it. They don't have that. They're self-discipline. Are we all together? Whatever doesn't eat you, eat it. That's their policy. Whatever doesn't eat you, you eat it. Like in fasting, what does it give you? Self-discipline. Number four, in fasting, there is health benefits. Okay, there are health benefits in there. But I want you to understand a point here right now. Whereas, whereas there are people who have made all of the ibadat that we do, they've based health benefits and they say we pray salah because it's a form of workout. And we fast because it's a what? It's a health benefit. No. We do this because Allah commanded us. We do this is because it's a spiritual thing for us. We won't eliminate that it could have health benefits in it. No problem. It could have it. But that's not why we're fasting. Why are we fasting? To attain taqwa from our fasting. So when I say here that... Fasting has health benefits. That's not why you're fasting, because you want to lose weight and you want to be slim. And... That's not your intent. Are we all together, brothers? You're not doing it because of that. But we don't dismiss the fact that it could have health benefits in it. 
and that there are health benefits uh, in it. And from the things that they mention is that it takes, they said, psychologists and others have stated that it takes for a person to get rid of a bad habit, it takes them 29 to 30 days. Are we all together? To get rid of a bad habit. And this is the month where you have that chance to do it. Shaitan is chained, and you have that opportunity. Now. This is the first hadith in the chapter of fasting. This hadith, Bukhari and Muslim both narrated. And there is something I never mentioned about this book. The unique thing about this book is, even that though it's a hadithul ahkam, that it talks about hadiths regarding and pertaining to jurisprudent rulings, all of the hadiths that he mentions in this book are Bukhari and Muslim. And some places where the author does mistakes, the hadiths are either one of the two. It's either one of the two. In other words, every single hadith in Umdatul Ahkam are all authentic. There is not one narration that's weak. So all of these hadiths that we're taking are in Bukhari and Muslim. What are they? Fisahihaini Bukhari and Muslim. But sometimes the wording that he picks can either be the wording of Bukhari or it can be the wording of Muslim. Like this hadith for instance, the wording that he chose is the wording of Muslim. The wording is the wording of Muslim. But the hadith is in Bukhari, but not in that same wording. Okay? It is not. The hadith says, لا تقدموا رمضان لا تقدموا It means don't go before. It used to be لا تتقدموا in the Arabic language, it used to be La Tatakadamu. One of the two tasks got taken out to make it easy for the people to say it. It used to be La Tatakadamu, but one tag got dropped, so it becomes easy for the people to say it. So instead of saying La Tatakadamu, La Tatakadamu, you just say La Tatakadamu. With one ta. And it's like the ayah, wala, wala tayammamul wala, wala tayammamul It's meant to be wala, wala tayammamul One of the tats got dropped. And it's from Mimbabi Takhfif. Why is it called Ramadan? What, what does, it says, La Ramadana. Don't go before Ramadan. What does the word Ramadan mean? The word Ramadan. It comes from the word Ar-Ramba. And Ar-Ramba is the pebbles. When the heat hits it so much, Ramadan comes from the heat and the thirst that the person goes through in the fasting. Are we all together, brothers? The pebbles, when it's out in the day and the sun hits it, it becomes hot. Ramadan was named after that because of the thirst and the hunger that the person goes through, that burning heat inside the person. 
The hadith it says لا تتقدموا أما لا تقدموا رمضان Don't go before رمضان بصوم يوم ولا يومين Don't go Don't fast One or two days before رمضان For example today Today Ramadan can either be In two more days You're not allowed to fast today You're not allowed to fast Or tomorrow You're not allowed to fast You're not allowed to fast it's prohibited. Here it says, لا تقدموا رمضان بصوم يوم ولا يومين. Okay, ولا يومين. There's another wording which says, أو يومين or two days. It says أو. And some people thought, it's one of the two that you can't do. There's another wording by Bukhari, which says, أو يومين or two days. And so they thought it meant one of the two you can't do. They use the O as litanwir. Okay? That's incorrect. It means that you can't do two or one day before Ramadan. You're not allowed to do it. Ramadan is about to enter. It's close. Two days before Ramadan, you're not allowed to fast. Or one day before Ramadan, you're not allowed to fast. Illa rajulun except a man. Kana yasumu sawman faliyasumhu. Except a man who used to fast. He had a particular fasting that he used to do. He used to fast Mondays and Thursdays. Or he used to fast the three days of every month. And apparently, some of you might think to yourself, the three days, isn't it ayamul bayd? There's a difference of opinion regarding that. We'll come to this soon, inshallah. So he fast anyways, or he used to fast the fasting of Nabi Dawood. Dawood what? Dawood would fast one day, he would take a rest the day after, and then he would fast again. So what happened was, it came on those two or one day before Ramadan. It hit it. You can fast, no problem. You're allowed to. You're an exception. You are a what? You're an exception. Because the Prophet said, Except a man, the benefits that we take from the hadith. We take five benefits from the hadith. Five benefits that we take from the hadith. Number one, that we're prohibited and that we're not allowed to fast a day or two before Ramadan. We're not allowed to. For one of these two reasons. Anything other than these two reasons, you are allowed to fast. Number one, if you do it for any of these two, you're not allowed to fast. You are not permitted to fast. If your intention of fasting one or two days before Ramadan is one of these intentions, then it's, you're, you're prohibited from it. You're not allowed to do it. Is al-ihtiyad. You're doing it because you want to be on the safe side. You're scared that the people might get it wrong. You're like, I want to be on the safe side. If I start fasting two days before Ramadan, I'm not going to miss Ramadan. No, don't do that. You're not allowed to. Or if you're doing it, or if you're doing it, you just want to do a voluntary act on the two days before Ramadan. You are not a person who used to do this voluntary. You randomly want to do it two days before Ramadan. Or one day before Ramadan, randomly, you're not allowed to. You're not allowed 
You're not allowed to do that. You're prohibited from it. It is haram. If you do it, you're sinning. You are sinning. But if you fast, which is the second benefit that we take from the hadith, which is the second benefit is that anyone who had a had a routine. You had a routine. I used to fast Mondays and Thursdays in the whole entire year. And apparently, it happened before two days of Ramadan or one day before Ramadan. Or you used to fast the fasting of Dawood. Then you are permitted to fast one or two days before Ramadan. No problem. You are permitted. Also, a person is fasting a fasting of nether. One, one or two days before Ramadan, he is also allowed. Or a person is fasting kafara, an expiation. Then they are allowed to fast one or two days before Ramadan. Or a person is fasting to pay back Ramadan for last year. Last year. Ramadan that you missed, you're paying it back for this Ramadan. One or two days before Ramadan, you're allowed to as well. All of those are allowed. But other than that, is not allowed. The third benefit that we take from the hadith is, the scholars, they researched. What was the reason? What is the hikmah? What is the wisdom in why we are not allowed to fast one or two days before Ramadan? What's the reason? Scholars, they researched. They looked into it. Okay? By the way, as a side benefit, the reasons why things are prohibited in the Sharia are two types. When it comes to the reason of why something is haram in the Sharia, it comes in two forms. It comes in two ways. The first one is that the Sharia will tell you why it made it haram. The reasoning is mansus. It is textually stated. The Sharia will say to you, you are not allowed to drink khamar because it intoxicates your mind. It told you why. You know why drinking khamar is haram. Because it what? It's because it intoxicates. This is mansus. It is textually stated. We don't need to ask anyone. The Prophet told us, alayhi salatu Are we all together? The second type is, the reason why something was made haram is not stated. The Quran did not state it, nor did the Sunnah state it. So the scholars will go out of their way, and they will research, and they will look, and they will try to find the wisdom of why it was prohibited. This is called mustambata. The illa is either mansus or it's mustambata. The mansus means the Quran and the Sunnah explain it and tell us why, like the khamar, it being an intoxicating, was stated by the Quran and the Sunnah. The second one is mustambata. The scholars will go out of their way and they will look for the wisdom and the reason in why something was made haram. So here, why was the fasting of two days, one day before Ramadan, why was it made haram? The scholars, they researched. Because they couldn't find a hadith that states it. They researched. And they came with two main reasons. Two main reasons. And again, I said two main reasons. They're not, they're not, they're not the only reasons, by the way. But two main reasons. So the scholars, they mentioned, the scholars, they mentioned two main reasons. The first reason they said is 
tamyizu fara'id al-ibadati an nawafilha to distinguish the obligatory from the voluntary if you fast one or two days before ramadan and you do it intentionally to do a voluntary before ramadan randomly then you're not distinguishing the obligatory from from the voluntary are we all together ramadan will enter and you are fasting already there's no distinguishing thing from the obligatory and the voluntary that one doesn't seem strong the reason why because the one who's fasting mondays and thursdays was allowed not true was he not allowed the one who fast monday thursday was allowed and that will cause the voluntary and the obligatory to come together right so that wouldn't be a good reason the better reason is the hukm al-siyam the fasting of ramadan is connected to ru'yatul hilali the sighting of the moon and if a person fasts those days just like that they really dismiss a ruling which is ru'yatul hilal the sighting of the moon and the rulings that are regarding it it won't have no value then if a person could just randomly fast a day or two before it what value does it hold we don't need to cut we just have to fast one or two days before it and that's it we'll catch up with ramadan anyways are we all together brothers so the sighting of the moon is a hukum shar'i it's a jurisprudent ruling and that can't be attained unless it what you distinguish the two from one another and that's the view ibn hajar al-asqalani you chose in fathul bari ibn hajar chose the second second point the fourth benefit that we take from the hadith is how the sharia it sets boundaries for things our religion is not like everybody do as you wish and as you want there's boundaries there are what there are boundaries and so ramadan has a starting point and shawwal has a and sha'ban everything set the fifth benefit that we take from this hadith is the permissibility of saying ramadan and not shahr ramadan that is permissible for you to just say ramadan some of the scholars are of the opinion that you can't say ramadan they said you have to say what shahr ramadan you have to add the word shahr the month of ramadan you can't just say ramadan like that this hadith is a response to them this hadith proves otherwise those are the five benefits that we take from the hadith now Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhuma may Allah be pleased with him and his father he said I heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa say إِذَا رَأَيْتُمُوهُ if you see it إِذَا رَأَيْتُمُوهُ the pronoun إِذَا رَأَيْتُمُوهُ it goes back to Al-Hilal the crescent what does it go back to? it goes back to crescent فَالْضَمِيرُ عَائِدٌ إِلَى مَفْهُومٌ مِنَ السِّيَاقِ something that's understood from the context which is the crescent just like Allah said in the Quran inna anzalnahu fi laylatil qadr inna anzalnahu that hat goes back to where 
Al-Quran, the Quran. It's talking about the Quran. This one is talking about what? The crescent. The sighting of the, the crescent. If you see the crescent, فَصُومُوا fast. Fast. وَإِذَا رَأَيْتُمُوهُ And when you see it, break your fast. As in, break your fasting. فَإِنْ غُمَّ فَإِنْ غُمَّ What does it mean, فَإِنْ غُمَّ The crescent becomes hidden from you. You can't see. There's clouds. The, the, it can't be sighted. فَقْدُرُوا لَهُ what does it mean? Another narration explained to us what it means, Fakdurullah. Another riwayah, which is the riwayah of Imam Muslim, which is, فَإِنْ غُمِّيَ عَلَيْكُمْ فَأَكْمِلُوا فَأَكْمِلُوا الشَّعْبَانَ ثَلَاثِينَ أَمَا فَقْدُرُوا لَهُ ثَلَاثِينَ Do 30 days. أَمَا فَأَكْمِلُوا الْعِدَّةَ ثَلَاثِينَ Complete it 30 days. On the 29th, which is tomorrow, we try to look for it, and we try to, we don't see it then don't worry. Complete the month to 30. Complete it to what? To 30. That is it. Other scholars, they said, they took another opinion from it. They said, actually means make it on the 29th. Hey, what's your argument? Where did you get that from? They said, means tighten the month. May mean Make that month little. Because they said, we take it from the ayah, Anyone whose provision was made tight on him. And they said, by tightening the month, it means by making it on the 29th. That's a second opinion. But that opinion is very weak because the hadith says, The hadith in Muslim, word for word, says, make it 30. Are we all together, brothers? So we already have a narration that states that it should be 30. What are the benefits that we take from the hadith? Um, what we take from the benefit that we take from the hadith is it's obligatory to fast Ramadan when the crescent is sighted. And the, fa- the breaking of Ramadan, meaning Ramadan is over, there's no more Ramadan. Shawwal has now entered. It's based on the sighting of the moon as well. Okay? The sighting here, some of the scholars, they said it should be on the naked eye. The naked eye. And other scholars, they said, if a, micro, if a telescope is used, uh, then that's also sighting. That's also sighting. Some scholars, they said that. The second benefit that we take from this hadith is, there's no consideration given to calculation. Calculation is not given no consideration for Ramadan. So what you see on the walls, the calendar, this is when Ramadan finishes, all based on calculation? No. Ramadan is not based on a calendar stuck on the masjid wall. The entering of Ramadan is not based on that. It's based upon what? The sighting. And the ending of Ramadan is based on the sighting. And this is a consensus amongst the ulama. There's no difference of opinion. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, he transmitted a consensus in this issue and so did Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani and Fath al-Bari. And the reason is because calculation cannot be done by everybody. Okay, it can't be done by everybody. It's done by experts. Like in the sighting of the moon and the crescent, it's something that everyone can sight. And the Sharia wants to make something accessible for who? 
for everybody. This is one of the pillars of Al-Islam. Number three, the, second, the third benefit that we take from the hadith is if the crescent is, we can't see the crescent. It becomes shadowed, hidden from us. Then we complete it on 30. We complete it what? On 30. And that's the correct opinion because we have a nasu sarihun la yaqbalu ta'wil. We have a direct hadith that doesn't accept any interpretation. The fourth benefit that we take from it is what about if the moon is sighted in a different country? And if it's seen in a different country? Another country says we saw the moon. You would have to fast because the hadith says if it's seen, if it's sighted, Fasumu, fast. Are we all together? As long as that country shares the time zone with us. For example, if it's sighted in Australia, then Australia doesn't have the same time zone as us. In other words, when we're in day, they're in night, and when we're in night, they're in day. Huh? Their sighting has nothing to do with us. Are we all together? So we look at the time zone. Anyone who's in that time zone, their sighting is a sighting for us, even if it's a different country. What about if somebody sees it by himself and no one else saw it with him? He saw it by himself and no one else saw it and he is sure that he saw it. Then he has to fast based on this hadith. Are we all together? He has to fast by himself. Because he sighted the moon. Because the Prophet said, If you see it, then fast. Other than Ramadan, the fasting is done with the people. Other than Ramadan, the fasting is what? It's done with the people. I'll speak about that in another session, inshallah. Ta'ala. The Prophet ﷺ in this hadith, he said, Tasaharu. Tasaharu is have suhoor. Tasaharu. This command is not lil wujub, it's not obligation. Tasaharu is not obligation. Even that though the qa'id and the principle is what? The unrestricted command, what does it benefit us? Obligation. If the Prophet commands you to do something, the unrestricted command of the Prophet, it shows obligation. You have to do it. And here is a command. It's a command. So how can I then say it is not obligatory? Because we have another evidence that shows it's not obligatory, which is what? The Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallama he did continual fasting and so did his companions do with him. 
So will wisal. We're going to see it soon, inshallah ta'ala. Continual fasting, which is that the person fast two or more days without breaking their fast. The messenger did it. And Abdullah ibn Zubair, he fasted 15 days continuously. He did not break his fast. 15 days. No iftar, nothing. Radiallahu ta'ala. Radiallahu ta'ala anhu. That shows us that the suhoor is not obligatory. Because those companions didn't have suhoor. No, did the Prophet have suhoor? Alayhi salatu, alayhi salatu wassalam. Tasaharu, have suhoor. Highly recommended for you. And then this amr is called amru irshad. La ijab. The message is guiding us to that which is best for us. Tasaharu, have suhoor. Fa'inna fis suhoori baraka. Because in the suhoor there is what? There is barakah. And the barakah that is in suhoor is barakah diniya and dunyawiyya. There's a religious benefit, a, a religious barakah, and there's a worldly barakah in there. There is a what? There is a, a religious barakah. And how is there a religious barakah? You're following the Prophet wasallam's instruction. There's a barakah in that. And also there's a worldly barakah in it, which is the person when they have suhoor, they will become enthusiastic and the person will be strong for that day's fasting. For that day's fasting. So there's two benefits in it. Barakah diniya and barakah dunyawiyah. We're going to finish off this particular hadith after the salah, inshallah ta'ala. We'll stop now for the salah. The benefits that we take from the hadith of Anas ibn Malik in Tasaharu fa'inna fi suhuri barakah. The benefits that we take from the hadith. Number one, the one who is fasting is commanded to fast. Sorry, what did I say? The one who is fasting is commanded to eat suhoor. The one who is fasting is commanded to eat suhoor because there is in it khayr, religious khayr, and religious barakah, and religious barakah. And what we said is that the command in this verse, sorry, the command in this hadith is not obligation, it's recommendation. And there's no difference of opinion that it's not, that it's not obligatory. There's no scholar that's going to say to you, suhoor is wajib. It's an ijma' consensus of the scholars that the suhoor is highly recommended. This is the opinion of all of the scholars. Ibn al-Mundi, rahimahullah, he transmitted a ijma' consensus. Like there's no difference of opinion. The second benefit that we take from the hadith is the fasting is an opposition of the non-Muslims. We are not imitating the non-Muslims. Because the non-Muslims, they also fast, but the difference between their fasting and our fasting is suhoor. Based on the hadith Sahih Muslim, that the Prophet said, فَصْلُ مَا بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَا The difference between فَصْلُ مَا بَيْنَ صِيَامِنَا وَصِيَامُ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ the difference between our fasting and the fasting of the people of the scripture, meaning the Jews and the Christians, is 
Aklatu sahri is eating suhoor. Eating suhoor is what makes our fasting different to what? To the fasting of the, the disbelievers. The third benefit that we take from the hadith is suhoor can be a person can eat in suhoor wherever he or she likes. Because the Prophet said, Tasaharu, have suhoor. And he didn't mention what you have to have. So you can have whatever you like. You can eat whatever you like. There's nothing restricted or mentioned that you have to have. Okay? It's whatever you like. Whatever. Walidalika, it's highly recommended, brothers, to eat something. Even if you don't want to eat something, you're full, you don't want to have anything, just so you can get the barakah. Drink milk and go back to sleep if you want to. Just, just have something. Put something in your mouth. It doesn't have to be a lot. Just so you can come with the advice of the Prophet Sallallahu The fourth benefit that we get from the hadith is how our religion is complete. Our religion is complete. It talks about everything. It discusses everything. It answers everything for us. Our religion is concerned with what we're going to eat before iftar. Everything. There is nothing that we need, any prosperity, success, good that we're looking for, Islam has it for us. This religion has everything for us. The fifth benefit that we take from the hadith is how the Messenger's method of teaching was so profound. He had the best way of teaching. His method of teaching is unprecedented, and how is that? He didn't just tell them, have suhoor. But he gave them the reason. He gave them the reason of why they should have suhoor. And that is something that one should do. That when you tell people to do something, it's good to tell them a good reason why. Because the person, when you tell them the reason, their heart and mind will open towards it. And they would be more inclined to doing it. So when the Prophet said, Tasaharu, then he said, there's barakah in it. Okay, yes, I'm going to do it. Are we all together, brothers? This was husnul ta'lim. His good way of teaching, alayhi salatu salam. Naam. Anas ibn Malik, he said, from Zayd ibn Thabitin. A Sahabi is narrating from another Sahabi, from the Prophet This is called Mursal al-Sahabi. This is called the what? Mursal al-Sahabi. وَلِذَلِكَ بَيْقُونِ in his نَظْمْ of Mustalah al-Hadith when he said, وَمُرْسَلٌ مِّنْهُ الصَّحَابِيٌّ سَقَطْ وَقُلْ غَرِيبُ مَا رَوَى رَوِينَ فَقَطْ He was wrong. He said, Mursal means when a Sahabi is missing. No. A sahabi narrating from another companion is also called a mursal. It's also a, it's also a mursal. Anyways, a companion, Anas ibn Malikin, is narrating from another companion. That's the, this shows us how the sahabas wanted to learn knowledge. Even if their other friends or the other companions had a narration and knowledge, they will take it from them. They will take it from them. 
Zayd ibn Thabitin, he said, Tasaharna ma'a Rasulillahi. We had suhoor with the Messenger. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. One day. Thumma qama ila salati. Then the Messenger stood up for the salah. Ma ma'ana tasaharna ay akalna as-sahur. Akalna as-sahur. Sahur, bi fath al-seen. We ate suhoor. That's what it means, tasaharna. We ate suhoor. With the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then the Messenger stood up for what? As-salah. What is it that he stood up for? The salah here is Salatul Fajr. The messenger stood up for Salatul Fajr. Zayd's telling the story. He's telling it to Anas ibn Malik. He's saying that one day we ate suhoor with the messenger and then we stood up for the salah. How do we know it's Fajr? And what, what prayer comes after suhoor? Fajr. Fajr. The context restricts the meaning. So it's not any, any prayer. It's Fajr. Qala Anas. Anas wanting to gain knowledge, he, in, he interjected and he said to um, Zayd ibn Thabit, What was the duration? And what was the duration between the adhan and the suhoor? What was the length? This adhan, some scholars they took it, it means the iqama. And some scholars, they took it, Ibn Daqiq al-Eid, he took it as the second adhan. The second adhan. How many adhans did the Prophet used to have? For Salatu, uh, for, for Ramadan, and how many, how many was it? The adhans, the first one was done by who? Bilal. And the second one was done by Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktoum. Are we all together, brothers? Brothers, are you paying attention? The messenger used to have two adhans done. One adhan was to wake the people up and the other adhan was for the salah, right? Who used to do the first adhan? Bilal. And the second adhan was done by who? Abdullah ibn Ummaktum, was he blind? Yeah? Can the mu'adhan be a blind person? Huh? The scholars, they took from there that the mufti who's given a fatwa, doesn't have to be a person who sees. He can be a mufti, even if he's blind. Based on the, based on the Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktoum. We're not going to go into that, that's a side point, okay? I don't want to go off track. So Ibn Daqiq al-Eid, he took from the hadith, from the apparent, the word adhan is used here, and it means the second adhan. So between Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktoum's adhan until Fajr, that's Ibn Daqiq's view. Ibn Daqiq al-Eid, and many have taken that view with him. Another view is, no, between the iqamah and the what? Between the iqamah and the, and the, uh, and the fajr. Between the two of them. Ala kulli hal, Ibn Daqiq al-Eid's opinion seems best for me, for many reasons, but not for, I'm not going to mention it now. That seems, means, seems to be zahir, because the hadith shows that from the zahir. So the Prophet so Zayd was asked a question. Who asked the question? Anas ibn Malik. He said, what was the time between the Adhan and the Fajr? He wants to know how long was the suhoor for? He wants to learn. Then he said to him, Qadru khamsina ayah. The duration was 60, 50 verses. 50, how many verses? 
50 verses from the Quran. Sheikh ibn Uthaymeen, he said, Sheikh ibn Uthaymeen, rahimahullah, he said that amount is approximately um, six minutes. Six minutes, he said, taqriban. If I remember correctly. Here, the question. The benefits that we take from the hadith. I'll mention the question and everything here. What are the benefits that we take from the hadith? Number one, suhoor is legislated in our religion. It's a legislated thing. It's mashru'ah. It's legislated. It is sanctioned in our religion. And that it's delayed until fajr. So it's up to fajr. Sahabas would eat the suhoor until fajr. Because what the generation said, we had suhoor with the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa then we stood up for Fajr, meaning they were eating until Fajr came in. Are we all together, brothers? Why? Because that is what meets the criteria of what the Sharia is trying to send, is that before you start your fasting, you are strong and you have a full stomach. So the person can eat. The person can eat. Number two. That's time between suhoor of the Prophet ﷺ and Salatul Fajr was what? I mean, how long was the suhoor of the Prophet ﷺ? It was the recitation of 50 verses. The third benefit that we take from the hadith is the generosity and the humility of the Messenger ﷺ, how humble he was. Our Messenger, that he used to eat with his companions. Sahih, the Messenger used to eat with his companions. We ate suhoor with the messenger. So he would sit down, he would eat with them. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He never saw himself to be high and no one's going to eat with me, I'm by myself. No. The fourth benefit that we take from the hadith is and then he stood up for fajr. Meaning as soon as the salah came in, the messenger stood up straight away. Straight away. Are we all together? He stood up straight away. When the time came in, he left the suhoor and he went to pray. Was what we take from it. The fifth benefit that we take from it is how the sahabas were hungry to gain knowledge and to learn every mas'ala, every issue, what is the ruling regarding it. Anas ibn Malik is a companion. He wants to know. He wants to learn the ruling of Allah Azawajal in a matter. The sixth benefit that we take from this is so whilst a person is eating the suhoor, he is in a state of ibadah. While you're eating the suhoor, what are you in? While you're eating your suhoor, that's a form of ibadah. You're worshipping Allah wa ta'ala in that state where you're eating. Why? First of all, the Prophet commanded you and whatever he commanded you is pleasing to Allah Azza wa Jalla. And whatever is pleasing to Allah is a, it's a ibadah. Number two. Number? Number two. The Sahabi al-Jaleel, Zayd ibn Thabitin, he chose, because suhoor is a ibadah, when he was asked about the duration, he didn't say how the Arabs were known to say, like nahril jazur, the slaughtering of a cow. That's how long it took. He didn't say that. He chose another ibadah to compare it to. Which is what? 
50 verses. 50 verses is a what? It's a ibadah. It's Quran. So because reading 50 verses is a ibadah, and the suhoor is a ibadah, that's why he felt it was good to mention a ibadah for another ibadah. Last but not least, the benefit that we take from it is how the sahabas were not heedless of their time. And they were aware of when things started and it finished. Time meant a lot to them. That's how they were able to transmit that information to us. We would be like, yeah, I don't know how long I was there for. I don't know how long it took. Because time doesn't mean much to us. But for them, subhanAllah, everything was organized. They knew their time. They knew their, the value of time. Naam. Here we're going to go into Hukmu, the ruling of fasting When you wake up in the morning And you are in a state of janaba You're in a state of janaba Janaba occurs either by someone having a wet dream Or it occurs by somebody having sexual intercourse with their spouse The messenger would wake up And it was what? Fajr entered Salatul Fajr entered and he's in a state of janaba and he would still fast. Aisha and Umm Salama, both of his wives, they said, Kana yudrikuhul fajru. Fajr will enter and it will reach him. Junubun, and he was in a state of janaba. Min ahlihi from his family. The word kana in the Arabic language, if the khabar, if the khabar of kana is a fi'il mudari'. The khabar of Kana. Kana has an ism and a khabar, right? If the khabar of Kana is a fi'l mudari' in the Arabic language, they say, tadullu ala istimrari ghaliban. It shows continuation that this happen, keeps happening and keeps happening. That's a side benefit. Ma lam yujad qarina. As long as there's no external factor that diverts it from it. But the point is, the messenger, alayhi salatu wasalam, fajr would come his way. Yudrikul fajr. Salatul Fajr will come. Wahua Junubun. What does it mean? Wahua Junubun. Dhu Janaba. He is upon major impurity. Major impurity. Junub in the Sharia it means anything that necessitates having to shower yourself. You have to have a shower from it. It's called the Junub. And it comes from two things. Min inzalin o jima. Either it, a person um, has a wet dream and it it comes from them or uh, sexual intercourse. Sexual intercourse. The hadith mentioned min ahlihi from his family. Why did the narration say from his family? He would be in a state of janaba from his family. It is trying to show you a very powerful fiqh issue, which is that the messenger was aware he was upon janaba. So when he woke up for fajr, he knew he was on Janaba. It was a deliberate act. Whereas if it was something that just happened to him and it was unintentional, Fuqaha would have made a khilaf about it. Are you with me, brothers? Am I making sense here? From Min Ahlihi, it shows 
that he had intimacy with his spouse, his wives, and he would tell Allah sleep. But the sunnah that is transmitted from the Prophet is, if a person has sexual intercourse with their partner, if you don't want to do ghusl, then do wudu before you go to sleep. Does that make sense? So the messenger will do wudu. If you don't do wudu, the angels will not enter the house. The angels will not enter the house if you are upon janabah and you haven't done wudu. Are we all together? So you do wudu if you don't want to do ghusl. And then you can do ghusl when you wake up, inshallah ta'ala. But then when you do the ghusl, you don't need to do wudu. Are we all together, brothers? Pay attention to that. Now the messenger, alayhi salatu wasalam, he would do what? He would wake up, Fajr would come in, and he, sallallahu alayhi wasalam, was upon Janaba. So the word min ahlihi means he was aware of it, alayhi salatu wasalam. The benefits that we take from the hadith. That the fasting of a person is correct. If he wakes up, and Fajr comes in, and he's upon Janaba, even if he didn't have a shower. Some scholars, they transmitted ijma' From them is Al-Wazir ibn Hubayra in his kitab Al-Ifsah. And also Al-Imam Al-Nawawiyu, he also transmitted ijma' in Sharh Sahih Muslim. There's a consensus, he said. The second benefit that we take from the hadith is the permissibility of delaying ghusl. That you're allowed to delay your ghusl. You don't have to have sexual intercourse with your spouse and straight away do ghusl. You don't have to. You are allowed to delay it. The third benefit that we take from this hadith is the woman who is on her menses is the same as the one who's on janaba. So if a sister wakes up and her menses finished before Fajr and she knew it finished before Fajr, she was aware, but she didn't shower from it, she slept. When she wakes up for Fajr, she fasts. She carries on her fasting. Does that make sense? Number four, the fourth benefit that we take from this is taking knowledge from the person you know that knows it the most. If you know some, a particular person specialized in a particular science, it's best to ask that person in the science which he specialized in. Where do we, how do we take that from the hadith? Who did the sahabas go back to in this question? Who is the one that could give the verdict in this issue? No one else could other than Aisha and Umm Salama or the Prophet's wives because they were the only ones who knew this about him. Are we all together? So you go to this person who knows something over someone who wouldn't know. There's another wording of a narration I want to mention here where Umm Salama said something very powerful. Abdul Ghani didn't mention in his hadith, in the narration here. He didn't mention it. He didn't mention it. Which is that Umm Salama, she said a, a different wording. She said, Kana Rasulullah The messenger, he would wake up, he would wake up in a state of janaba. Min jima'an from sexual intercourse. That we have that all. La min hilmin, not from a wet dream. We already have that. Thumma and then he wouldn't break his fast. And he wouldn't bring back that day. That's an extra benefit. Are we all together? 
You don't have to bring back that day that you, you woke up for Fajr and you were in state of Janabah. Some might say, okay, I agree that you have to fast. But does that mean I have to bring back that, that day? This narration tells us, no, you don't have to bring back that day. That's a valid, correct day. Nothing wrong with it. And that's the benefits, brothers, of bringing all of the narrations in issues. Things like that become more clear to you. And you learn many more things like that. And you also learn from this issue right now as well, the more narrations that you have, brothers, the more your fiqh is more stronger. Sahih? And the scholars of hadith have more knowledge of fiqh than anyone else. The fifth benefit that we take from the hadith is the permissibility of being direct in issues where there is a necessity for you to be direct. If it's something that the people are shy about, but there's a ruling of the sharia connected to it, that you can say it and don't be shy about it. Inna Allah la min al-haqq. Allah is not shy from the truth. Umm Salama and Aisha are telling the people about their intimate relationship with the Messenger alayhi salatu salam. It's something that people are shy about. But they are saying it for what reason? Maslaha. Maslaha. They're mentioning this for maslaha. The last benefit that we take from the hadith is the Prophet's actions are a proof. The Messenger's actions are proof. Like now. The Prophet's actions are what? They are a proof. Now. The Abu Hurairah, he said that the messenger said, Man nasiya, whoever forgets, wa huwa sa'imun, while he is fasting. This word man is being used here. Okay, what is being used here? Man is being used here. Man is mean, means siyagil umum. It's from the general terms. It, the word man is talking to a man, and it's also talking to a, a woman. It's talking to what? Both. Man or woman. Man nasiya, whoever forgets. What does the word nasiya mean? Forget, right? It means ghaba an dhihnihi, something that you already knew, but now it went absent from your mind. It's called nisyan. Um, again, the mudaf is mahdufiya. I'm a maf'ul, sorry. The maf'ul here is, sorry, is the maf'ul. Maf'ul, word nasiya, where is its maf'ul? The object. It's mahdufiya. Nasiya sawmahu. He forgot his fasting. So when he forgot his fasting, what did he do? فَأَكَلَ He ate. أو شَرِبَ He drank. Does it matter how much you ate and how much you drank? No. Because the evidence is unrestricted. It doesn't matter the quantity of what you took in. The person ate and he drank. He ate breakfast. He ate lunch. He doesn't remember. He had a little snack, appetizer. He had a what? Dessert. Until now he doesn't remember. Nothing came to his mind. Oh, Shariba, or he drank two liters of water. Are we all together? He doesn't remember. It doesn't matter. Complete your fasting. It's haram for you not to carry on your fasting. If you remember, you say, Inna lillahi. Ten minutes. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi Ten minutes is left for Fajr. Uh, sorry, for Maghrib. And I was eating all day. 
for those 10 minutes it's obligatory for you to withhold you can't say subhanallah it's only 10 minutes left I'm just going to finish off what I was doing I'll bring it back another time no complete your fasting Allah is the one who Allah is the one who provided you with food and Allah is the one who gave you huh, who quenched your thirst Allah is the one who did it for you subhanahu wa ta'ala this is the reason why there is nothing upon you is because this didn't come from you it didn't come from you Nothing, it didn't happen from you it happened from Allah this is attributed to Allah it's Allah who did it for you subhanahu wa ta'ala it's Allah who did it the benefits that we take from this hadith the benefits that we take from the hadith Number one is Anyone who drinks or eats His fasting is correct Anyone who drinks And who eats Out of forgetfulness His fasting is correct There's nothing wrong with it And there is no sin upon him Because he didn't intend it He didn't intend to eat I mean he did intend to eat But he didn't intend to go against Ramadan Okay is it only restricted to fasting? Uh, sorry, is it only restricted to eating and drinking? What about if he has intimate relationship with his wife? It's the same. It's the same ruling. Are we all together? If he has sexual intercourse with his wife, he forgot and she forgot. Both of them forgot and they have intimate relationship. There is nothing upon them. Why was the sexual intercourse here not mentioned? Because sexual intercourse a lot you have a lot of time to generally remember Whereas generally the eating happens where you put something in your mouth Allah you stop like that generally even eating it doesn't happen that a person has breakfast and lunch and dessert and dinner and then he it doesn't generally ha- generally it doesn't happen like that there could be random people here or there I'm a situations here or there but generally you put something in your mouth I mean you ate breakfast and then after that you remember so Sexual intercourse, on the other hand, it's a lot of time for the person to really come back to their senses and remember that they are fasting. That's why it wasn't mentioned. But the eating and the f- drinking, it's taking the place of the mufattirat, all of the things that break your fast. Anything that breaks your fast, if you do it out of forgetfulness, they all take the same ruling. There's no exception. There's no exception. But the reason why drinking and fasting was mentioned is majority of the times, that's what happens to people is that they forget drinking and eating. And they just go and they eat and drink. The second benefit that we take from the hadith is the eating and the drinking does not reduce that reward. So let's say one who never ate all day was fasting, he never put nothing in his mouth. Another one forgot and he ate. Are they both the same in the reward? Yes. They're both the same. Because this one who ate, nothing is attributed to him. That's not him. He forgot. And Allah said in the ayah, Rabbana la tu'akhidna in nasina aw akhta'na. In the hadith of Muslim, what did Allah say? Qad fa'altu. Because the dua, what did we say? Oh, our Lord, don't hold us to account. 
something that we do out of forgetfulness and a mistake that we do. Oh Allah, don't hold us account to it. In Sahih Muslim, the messenger said, when the believers made that dua, Allah said, Qad fa'altu, I have done that for you. Meaning, I will never hold you account to something that you do out of forgetfulness and something you do out of mistake. So, this person, nothing is being held against him. Nothing is held against him. The other benefit, that, the, the third benefit that we take from the hadith is, How Allah Taala's mercy is very vast, and how kind and generous our Lord Allah Azza wa Jalla is. Naam. This hadith is, what's the ruling regarding the one who has sexual intercourse with his wife في نهار رمضان in between Fajr and Al-Maghrib, Salatul Maghrib. What's the ruling? Someone has sexual intercourse with his wife. Deliberately. What is the ruling? This hadith mentions Abu Huraira said that بينما نحن جلوس One day we were sitting عند رسول الله with the messenger. إذ جاءه رجل أيمان came. فقال he said, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, Halaktu, I am destroyed. قال the Prophet then said to him, Malak, what is it that's happened to you? قال he said, Waqa'atu ala mra'ati. I had sexual intercourse with my wife. وَأَنَا صَائِمٌ And I was fasting. In another wording he said, أَصَبْتُ أَهْلِي فِي رَمَضَانِ I had an intimate relationship with my wife. فقال Rasulullah, the Messenger said, هَلْ تَجِدُ رَقَبَةً تُعْتِقُهَا Do you have a slave in which you can free? قَالَ لَا The man said no. فَهَلْ تَسْتَطِيعُ Are you able أَن تَصُومَ شَهْرَيْنِ مُتَتَابِعَيْنِ To fast two months consecutively every day for those two months. You're not allowed to miss one day. قَالَ لَا He said, I am not able to do that. فَهَلْ تَجِدُ إِطْعَامَ سِتِينَ مِسْكِينَ Can you provide for 60 poor? Are you able to give food to 60 poor? قَالَ لَا He said, I can't do that. فَمَكَثَ النَّبِيُّ The Prophet remained for a period of time. فَبَيْنَمَا نَحْنُ عَلَى ذَلِكَ As we were sitting like that. أُوتِيَ النَّبِيُّ The Messenger was brought 
a portion of dates were brought to him. Alayhi salatu wasalam. An amount of date was brought to him. The messenger then said, Ayn al where is the one who was asking the question? Qala ana. The man said, it's me. Qala khudha. The Prophet said, take this. Fatasaddaq bihi. Give this as a sadaqah. Faqala rajulu the man then said, Ala afqara minni ya Rasulallah. Is there anyone more poorer than I am? Is there anyone more poor than I am? Fawallahi by Allah. Ma bayna la batayha. Ahla baytin afqara min ahli baytin. There is no one more poorer than me than the city of Medina. Two mountains in between Medina. He's referring to the city. All of Medina, I'm the poorest, he said. And he swore by Allah. Fawallahi, he said by Allah. Fadahika nabiyu, the messenger laughed. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is the man who did, had sexual intercourse with his wife. He couldn't do anything. And then the dates were brought. And he was told to give it out. And now he wants to take it. Fadahika nabiyu, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Fadahika rasulullah. The messenger laughed. Hatta badat an Until the Prophet's two, the two, the fourth front. And then after that, there's two, right? The molar teeth. I just thought some might not know what molar means. You don't know what a molar teeth is, right? So first four, after that, it's called the molar teeth, right? The Prophet laughed until those could be seen. He never ever laughed too much like that, alayhi salatu ways. All of his teeth could be counted. He laughed, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Thumma qala, then the messenger said, At'imhu ahla, give it to your family then. Give this to your family. What is the benefit that we take from the hadith? What is it that we take and the benefit that we take from the hadith? First of all, the man, so first benefit, the severity and the great sin in having sexual intercourse with your spouse in Ramadan, whilst you're fasting. Because look what the man said, Halak too, I am destroyed. And the messenger asked him in another wording, what is it that destroyed you? Meaning the Prophet affirmed that this is the destruction. Are we all together? Having sexual intercourse with your wife is a destruction. It's a destruction. That shows the severity and how severe it is. Second benefit that we take from the hadith is anyone who has sexual intercourse with his wife. In the, while he's fasting, the greatest kafarat, the greatest form of expiation is upon him. And it's in the following, I mean it's in the sequence that I'm gonna mention. It's in these three orders. The first thing that the person has to do is you have to free the slave, the neck of a slave. Is this slave a female Muslim or a non-female Muslims? Some scholars they said the Prophet didn't mention it here. He just said to him, and other scholars, they came back and they said, It's a believing woman only. Because they took it from all the other kafarat where it's mentioned. Which Allah said in the ayah, Okay, not the ayah then. Another ayah, so they took it from that ayah. They said the expiation, all of them are the freeing the neck of a slave 
a female woman. The second thing, the second kafara after, if you can't do this freeing of the slave, the second is you have to fast two months consecutively. Two months consecutively. You're not allowed to break it. When we say you can't, if you say I can't do it, it's because of illness. You have an illness that doesn't allow you. A person can't be like, for two months? No. Wallahi, I can't. That's too much. The idea is to punish you because you did a big crime. What did you do? It's a big crime that you committed. So, fast. But he goes, I have an illness that doesn't allow me. I have an illness that doesn't allow me. Okay? Then we'll say, okay, you have a lead way. Go to the third. The third one is 60. You have to feed. How do you feed the 60? Some scholars, they said, every day of Ramadan, you, give, you, you provide for two people. How many people? 60, 30 days like that. Or if you want, you can bring all 60 at one time and do it if you want to. Both of them are permissible, as long as you do it. Is it upon the person to bring back the fasting? Does he have to bring back that fasting? We know he has to do this kafara, okay. We know that day is destroyed. But does the person have to bring back that fasting? Or is the kafara enough? Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah, he was of the opinion that the messenger didn't command the man to bring that fasting back. He didn't. Are we all together? The messenger didn't. So he doesn't have to bring back that fasting. And this is also the opinion held by Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. And this is not only restricted to fasting. If a person misses Isha, for example, or Maghrib, or Asr, or Dhuhr, or Fajr, deliberately, they see the time go by, and they deliberately miss it, they're not allowed to bring that prayer back. You can't bring back that prayer. The salah is gone. Bye. It's finished. You do not bring that prayer back. What you need to do is like him. Is you need to come with nawafil, voluntary prayers. A lot of sunnah. A lot of nawafil. A lot of sunan. In hoping that inshallah ta'ala. You know how the 12 rawatib that you pray daily? Hoping that would, that would do it for you inshallah ta'ala. Because inna salata kanat ala al-mu'minina kitaban. Salah has a time where it comes in and it leaves. That time is over. If you say, I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray Maghrib and Isha another time, you've taken the value of it being in a particular time. Isha doesn't have no time then, any. Everyone can do whatever they want it. Are we all together? No, no, no. Its time is over now. Just like when things are closed, they're, not, they're closed. If a shop is closed, it's closed. You can't just say, open it, open it. Um, also from the hadith, the benefit that we take from it is The man said, halaktu, I am destroyed Some of the scholars, they took from this He said this because he deliberately did it He knew He knew he wasn't allowed to have sexual intercourse With his wife in Fir Nahari Ramadan He was aware of it Are we all together? Because we already spoke about if he does it, what? Out of forgetfulness, there's nothing upon him We already spoke about that But this man said, Halaktu, I am destroyed. What does that show? Brothers, pay attention. You have to distinguish two. The person intended the action, 
and the person intended to go against Allah's command. Those are two different things. Intending the action doesn't necessitate kafara. But intending to go against Allah's command is what? Is what necessitates kafara. Because the one who forgot, did he not intend to have intercourse with his wife? Of course he did. But he didn't intend to go against the fasting because he wasn't aware of the, it was Ramadan. Does that make sense? Okay. The question here is, some scholars, they took from this that the only person who has to give back the kafara is the man and not the woman. Some of the fuqaha, they took that from this. And the reason is because the messenger didn't ask for the woman. The Prophet didn't say to her, where's your wife? She has to do it as well. He didn't say that to her. And scholars responded back to that. They said for two reasons. One response they said is that whatever was said to the man is going to be the same for the woman. It doesn't have to be mentioned for both of them. And that's a good response. Another reason why scholars mentioned that the Prophet didn't mention the woman is because he didn't know what her reason was. Because the man could have forced her. And if she's forced, there's no kafara upon her. She, if he forces her, he says, I will divorce you. She's like, okay, don't divorce me. And she does it. She is mukra. She's under duress. And she does it. Nothing is upon her. Nothing is upon her. That the burden is lifted from the person who is forced to do something. Another benefit that we take from the hadith is um, you are allowed to swear by Allah's name based on high speculation, even if it's not certainty. High speculation. What did the man say? For wallahi, by Allah, there's no one poorer than me in the city of Medina. How does he know everybody in Medina? Does he know everybody in Medina? Are we all together? The man doesn't know everyone in Medina. He doesn't know it. What did he base it upon? He based it upon high speculation. High speculation. He looked at his situation and he couldn't fathom anyone like it. Okay? And the messenger didn't say to him, stop, 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 stop. How do you know that? He didn't correct him. Are we all together, brothers? And the fact that the Prophet didn't say anything shows the permissibility. That a person can swear by Allah based on high speculation. Also, we take the benefit from this hadith that if somebody comes to you remorseful, they are remorseful of a sin that they did, they are regretting it, they're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That you don't use that as an opportunity to hurt them even more. And say, but you did it. Subhanallah, how did you do it? Like, brother, explain to me. It's impossible. This is evil of you to do it. You are one treacherous person. And you hurt the person even more. He came to you repenting. He came to you regretful. What do you want to do? Score points. In England, we call it brownie points. What are you trying to get from this? The person is remorseful. The messenger didn't use that against him because what he wanted from him, which is regret, is already there. Are we all together? And that's one of the conditions of repentance. Also, what we take from this hadith is how the Prophet ﷺ was very generous and kind. That it was a hadiyah. Somebody gave something to the Prophet. It was given to him. And he didn't forget the man. He said, where's the questioner? Come here. You give it out. Use this. That's generosity. That's kindness. 
we would have said, from the UK, we would have said, every man for himself. That's what we believe. In Europe, in New England, in UK, everyone's for himself. No one cares about. Islam teaches us what? That the messenger remembered the man. He said, Aina Sailu. Are we all together? Where's the questioner? Also, what we benefit from the hadith is how the Sahabas would sit with the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to attain knowledge from him and to gain understanding from him and also learn from his manners and his etiquettes and the way he carried himself Alayhi Salatu Wasallam How do we take that from the hadith? We take it from the hadith is بَيْنَمَا نَحْنُ جُلُوسٍ عِنْدَ النَّبِي Wasallam. One day we were sitting with the Messenger Why were they sitting? Because something's going to come out of his mouth He's going to say something They want to see how he carried himself how he talked, how he, deal, he dealt with people. They used to learn from him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We also take from this hadith is the permissibility of mentioning your sins to someone that you hope will give you a solution to your problem. It is permissible to tell your sins to someone who you hope will give you a solution to your problem. Are we all together? And that it doesn't fall under the hadith of the messenger That all of my ummah are forgiven Except those who speak about their sins openly It doesn't fall under that hadith Because that is talking about A people who boastfully Talk about their sins Yeah, you know what I did last night? Subhanallah, this is the sin I did last night And he's, he's talking about it out of boastfulness Are you with me? And I want to mention here sometimes Some people they come into Islam What do they become? They become Muslims. And they want to talk about their past and what they did. Okay? And they want to talk about it. And sometimes it may come across uh, you're talking about your glory days. Like it was the fun days in my life that I went through. And sometimes it can come across glorifying it to the Muslims and glorifying it to the people. Are we all together, brothers? I'll give you an example. If somebody before Islam murdered someone, would you tell? Would you talk about it? Would you talk about somebody you murdered before Islam? Would you say, before I became a Muslim, there was a couple of people I murdered? Would you say that? No, you conceal that. So why would you talk about zina that you did before Islam or the khamr that you drank before Islam? Why would you boast about that? At the end of the day, sir, it's a sin. It's a sin. So a person should avoid that. Like if you have a problem, you are doing something haram and you want help, you need support, somebody to guide you to the best of ways, shara'an is permissible for you to ask advice from that person. A person and put it towards them, inshallah ta'ala. Number, what benefit number are we on? Yeah? The next benefit, I mean, the last benefit that we get from this hadith is the permissibility of using al-kinaya indirect in things that it's not nice to talk about that you don't say you don't use vulgar statements but that you use sublimatory messages you say indirect like for example the companion what did he say the, mess, the companion said asabtu ahli fi ramadan he used the word asabtu I had intimacy with my family. Waqa'atu, he said. Waqa'atu actually means in the Arabic language, I fell on my wife. It means intimacy here. It didn't mean he, fell, he tripped over her. It means intimacy. The words that he's using here 
are very modest words. And some people, subhanAllah, when they want to talk about sins, they are known to use vulgar statements. They want to guide people and they will say, instead of, saying, instead of using general terms like brothers fear Allah, don't do haram, stay away from following your desires, these, a lot of things can fall under that. He will say the sin by name and he will describe it. That's not how our religion is. Be in, use sublimatory. Say it, say it in a package it in a right way. And all of these brothers, the more you study the Prophet's statements and the hadith of the Prophet, and you see how the companions used to talk to the Prophet, you learn all of that. You learn all of that. We have five minutes left, taqriban. I'm going to inshallah ta'ala stop for now here and we were meant to do how many? 16 today and I think we've done 7 right? So how much do we have left? How many do we have left? We have 25 left tomorrow. Make dua for us inshallah ta'ala. I'm going to take question Q&A right now. Question and answers from the floor. I, want, I would like your questions to be to what we took today. There's, don't ask me i'tikaf. Don't ask me Qiyamul Layl, Laylatul Qadr, when is it? Don't ask me what's going to come. Okay? Just ask me what you haven't understood from what I've mentioned. Inshallah ta'ala. And of course, don't go off topic. Don't ask me other questions. Um, also, tomorrow, there could be a possibility that the day after is going to be Ramadan, right? It could happen, right? That Sunday could be Ramadan, right? There's a possibility. So tomorrow, some of you guys want to get ready for what? You want to get ready, ready for? Taraweeh and things like that, right? It's going to be prayed, right? The night before. If it's announced, right? No, not tomorrow, not tomorrow. But suhoor, you want to get it ready for it and whatnot, sah? Or you want to go back to your households and spend time with your family before Ramadan starts. So... We will cut short tomorrow. But that means, brothers and sisters, if you can come 6 o'clock sharp, 6 sharp, the class starts, and we go to 8 o'clock. I want to finish all of it by within those two hours, inshallah ta'ala. Remember there's salah in there. I will kindly request, if you could pray only the Maghrib sunnah. Sah? The Maghrib sunnah. As for Isha, if we can get some time after it, just if we don't finish, pray at home. So we can just start the class straight away, okay? The sunnah is better to pray at home anyways, Isha. Take it home. So we can start the class straight away because it will be very good for us to finish the whole chapter. Let's just take one opinion, which is that the hadith when it said adhan, what was it referring to? Yeah? It's referring from the second adhan to where? To the iqama, which is fajr. Fadl. Yes. If a person puts, the brother asks, if somebody puts something in their mouth and before they could swallow it, they remembered that they are fasting, of course they have to stop it. And because you're not allowed to eat now. You're not allowed to eat. As a side point, I wanted to mention that what some people do is, if they see someone eating, they say, leave him alone. Allah is providing for him. 
This is Allah is bringing him food. No. Stop him. Him eating in Ramadan is a munkar. You see a munkar, you have to stop it. He might not like you, but hakada. Aye. Inshallah ta'ala, if the, if the adhan, if the salah, if salah time finishes and you have suhoor, I mean the salah time is coming in, the iqam is happening and you have the food in your hand, are we all together and you have food in your mouth, you can take them both inshallah. You can take what's in your hand and what's in your mouth. Swallow that and take what's in your hand. And if what's in your plate is very, very little, you can also take that. I don't want to go into more details. There's difference of opinion, that's the strongest, inshallah ta'ala. So the uh, end of the If you're forced, if you're forced to break the fast, as in what reason? Or if you're, somebody stops you from fasting and you can't fast. And you, if anyone who's been put under duress, he has been forced, he has no choice, Allah won't hold him account for it. There's no sin upon them. Are we all together? If he's been forced, for example, some places in the world, they force you, they tell you, eat. Eat. And the person is forced to eat. Are we all together? That's nothing upon him. But when he walks away, what does he do? He carries on his fasting. Are we all together? What does he do? He carries on his fasting. He doesn't just say, oh, I was stopped from it. No. You can eat. Sorry, adhan? Yeah, the adhan. Because we said the adhan between adhan and the Ha. Huh. So the adhan would come at 4.19. Uh-huh. So 25 minutes later, you make it Ha. Ha. That, that 25 minutes, can I eat? Or you're saying, adhan, yeah, of the when he's breaking up, like one hour before. Yeah, because, because, no, but like, I, 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 you guys, I know, sorry. How long is Fajr between? Uh, 25, huh? 25 minutes between what? Between the second Adhan and the Iqamah. That's 25 minutes. This is for people to come to the Masjid or whatever it's for. 
25 minutes is Fajr. 25 minutes is between Adan and the Iqama. I'll answer that tomorrow, inshallah. Uh, Father, I'll ask that question tomorrow. Can I okay repeat the question here? No, I, I don't want to hear you. But the question you asked, I have to say somewhere here. Yeah. So the question is that uh, no, I'll answer it tomorrow. Don't worry. They don't need to do that question. I'll answer it tomorrow. Yeah, if you're sick, you don't have to fast anyways. If you're sick, that you have to take medicine, you don't, ha- you don't fast. Of course. Yes. The substance that you take, anything that goes into your system that gives you any energy, also takes the same ruling as food. So some people might take a jab and it gives them glucose. They don't eat, need to eat forever. They can just always put something into their system that gives them exactly what food gives them. If you're sick, you don't fast, Aslan. You, 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 there's no fasting upon you. The sickness is too tight. The person has a terminal illness where there's no hope to come back. The person has diabetes for like all of their life. This person, they don't ever fast and all they do is kafara. The second type of illness is temporary illness. When the person gets sick in Ramadan for a period of time, this person doesn't have to do kafara. They just have to bring it back. Does that make sense? No. Last question. Last, last, last question. Who do I like to hear their question? Fadal. Hamad. So the question here is A person has missed some fasting from last year um, where, What do they do? We're going to mention inshallah ta'ala it's, some, it's one of the hadiths that's coming up Where Aisha used to say that I used to not fast The Ramadan that I missed Until Sha'ban came I would hold it to Sha'ban And she would fast in this month She would pay it back so I want to mention some fiqh on that, on that issue tomorrow which is then which he fasts the six days of shawwal yes she would and how what about the outstanding days of Ramadan she would bring that back later and how do you, are you with me brothers but if Ramadan comes and you haven't brought back the other Ramadan then it just piles up it becomes more for you to fast after Ramadan it's a debt that you have to pay back before you die and then if you don't pay it back, who does it go back to? We're going to be discussing it, inshallah ta'ala.